morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're in verses 10 to 16. Uh, I do want to read verses uh, 10 to 16 to give us a context and to help us uh, understand what is taking place in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. So let's look at, uh, we'll actually start in verse uh, 9 and then read to 16 and explain what it means. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. I've entitled this sermon The Sanctified Home. The Sanctified Home. Because that is what Paul continues to provide a portrait of because the Corinthians have indeed uh, perverted in their mindset and some of the sins that they were partaking in with respect to sexual immorality, they were striking against what it means to have a sanctified home. And so Paul the Apostle continues his instruction to the married. So he wants the married. And he wants the unmarried to take heed as well as those who needed to be reconciled together with respect to marriage. So he's dealing with those who are married and he's dealing with those who perhaps were widowed once married before or those who are unmarried and making considerations for each of them so that they could understand what the Lord has intended for the home. In verse uh, in verse 10 of chapter 7, he gave instructions explicitly from the Lord for the wife not to abandon her husband. It says in verse 10, but to the married, I give instruction. So he's speaking to the married couples, to the husband of one wife and the wife of one husband. I must say it that way because of the perversions that exist in our modern society and the perversions that existed at the time in Corinth. So when he speaks to the married, he's speaking, as he has said in the previous chapter, to the husband of one wife and the wife of one husband, male and female joined together in marital union. And so there is no other union to which Paul refers and calls anyone to be a part of. But when he speaks in this way, he's given instructions to the married couple. And he says, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And so here what he's saying is that this is an explicit command from the Lord, not as we have said when we talked last week about the concession 
that he was making. It's not a concession that Paul is saying something the Lord has not said, but rather it's not a firm command when he says, I'm saying this, not necessarily the Lord. It is still divine scripture. But what he's saying in that instance is that I'm giving you an invitation to consider something. And so in that way here, he's now moving on to this is an instruction that the Lord is giving, that the Lord is giving to those who are married. And it is explicit. He says that the wife should not leave her husband, that the wife should not leave her husband. The wife should not abandon her husband. And then in verse 11, in verse 11, it says, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. So the Bible only knows of the scenario by which if it becomes unpeaceable, uh, conflicting for the wife to continue on with her husband and she leaves him, she must remain in that state unless she desires to be reconciled to him. So the Bible teaches that husband and wife should always be reconcilable toward one another. They should always be reconcilable one to another. So she must remain unmarried, he says, or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. The husband should not divorce his wife. So for the wife who left her husband, the end goal was for her to not simply leave her husband. The end goal, as Paul wrote, was reconciliation back to her husband if it were possible. If it were not possible, it was for her then to remain unmarried. And Paul continues to deal with this because, as I've said, it's not simply he's trying to paint a picture uh, of what the family looks like just as a static principle. But he's doing it because the Corinthians were making uh, a mockery of the family, not all of them, but some of them in the area that Paul is dealing with. And so before we talked about how he dealt with intimacy in marriage and uh, and then now we're looking at how he's dealing with reconciliation and the in the reconcilable heart with respect to marriage. And so Paul views this as a very sanctified thing. So he instructed he instructed the wife to remain reconcilable. Essentially, what Paul did not want, Paul did not want man and wife to sever what God had brought together. He didn't want to. He didn't want them to split or uh, or 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 to abandon one another for reasons that are trivial. And he certainly didn't want them to split what God had joined together. And that is male and female. And I believe that some of that is because it speaks of fidelity and loyalty and loyalty to Christ and, and loyalty uh, displayed to Christ by that one flesh union, the loyalty to one another. And so Paul deals with that. But he certainly instructs the husband in the same way not to divorce his wife, not to leave his wife, not to seek uh, to be alienated from his wife. And that should not be his goal in marriage. So essentially, Paul is dealing with how the family ought to look before God and how the family ought to look in reconciliation if by chance there were a situation where sin, sin entered in or whatever may be the case, and there were irreconcilable differences. Well, Paul doesn't know of any irreconcilable differences. He says that the two must always be 
having a heart of reconciliation together, even if they don't come back together, they should remain single, demonstrating that they have a heart to reconcile one day. So Paul is dealing with this patience, this resting in Christ, this trusting in Christ in order to have a home that pictures what Christ had had modeled for the believers. Because that type of fidelity spills right over into what the church ought to look like and how the church ought to function. So we look at verse 12. He says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. To the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, Paul is not saying I'm no longer speaking on behalf of Christ. He's not saying you can consider everything that I've said so far scripture. But this this is just a matter of opinion. We talked about this last time that when Paul says I'm saying this, not the Lord, he's saying it's not necessarily an explicit firm command. But it is an outworking of God's command that I want you to consider. And so therefore, it is still scripture and it is still what Paul wants is God's best. But he's saying it's not a firm commandment because I want you to focus on what he's focused on. He's focused on I want you both to remain together if you're married. So he's not saying, well, the Lord would rather have it that you're not together. And here's all the concessions that you make when you're not together. What he's saying is, I'm saying that if this doesn't work out, then here's what that looks like. And so this is an outworking of divine command, not explicitly a command itself, because Paul doesn't want the male and female severed from their marriage. So he says to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Paul doesn't allow for excuses. He doesn't allow for excuses occasions to be tempted by Satan, as he says earlier in verse five, when he says in the realm of intimacy, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He doesn't allow for a quote unquote sanctified exploring of uh, of the field, so to speak. He doesn't allow for uh, fornication idolatry or idolatry in circumstances where it's just unbearable to live with a spouse who's an unbeliever if one is a believer. Paul is dealing with all aspects of this, and we're thankful for this because he paints a picture that I believe is quite different from the picture that modern evangelicals paint. And I'll tell you why I believe that's different. But here, Paul says to the rest, quote unquote, to the rest, He is dealing with the general populace of believers at large. And this is, as I've said, not a matter of explicit command, but rather merging the implicit, that which is implied from what he said, and the practical of what is implied. It is why he says, I say this, but not the Lord. He's not saying the Lord hasn't spoken in this area. He's saying the Lord has given me my charge to give you the practical. Now, you must deal with the firm command. And guess what? If a husband and wife is together, what then happens? You don't have to worry about the outworking of the unbelieving spouse abandonment. If two of the uh, husband and wife, uh, if they are both believers, you don't have to deal with the unbelieving aspects of that. 
So Paul is saying God intends for them to be believers, but here's how that works itself out if they're not. And so Paul says, I believe it's why he words it this way. I say not the Lord. I say not the Lord. So again, I want to be clear because he said it before. It's not that Paul here is contradicting the Lord. And it's not that he's setting aside the Lord's commandment. For all that we read is scripture. Everything we're looking at here is scripture. However, Paul, again, he's showing what is practical because he's dealing with unbelievers. So he's not saying to unbelievers, I need you to follow the Lord's commandment. He's saying to believers who live their lives with unbelievers, here's how you function with them. And so he's giving them a practical understanding of how the unbelieving spouse and believing spouse may coexist together in what God has intended for them in marriage. I look at the reverse of that. It would make no sense biblically for Paul to talk to believers and say, here's what I command for you in the Lord. Well, they're not in the Lord. So he has to say it's coming from me, an apostle to the believer. But believers, you can stake your claim that this is what God desires. And so he says it that way. Paul doesn't want to make it seem as though he's inviting unbelieving spouses at large into the fellowship of the church. That's why he gives the command as he does. It's why he's speaking to the believers about the unbelievers. And he's saying, here's what God desires for you as you make your living in life amongst unbelievers. And especially if you have an unbelieving spouse in your home. And so we look at that in the context of verse 12, as I say, we look at that in the context of verse 12. If the unbelieving wife desires to live with the believing husband, then they are to remain as they are. They are to remain as they are. And the husband must not divorce or abandon her if he's an unbeliever. I didn't say he wouldn't. I didn't say he wouldn't try to because Paul deals with that as well. But Paul is saying this is what I would expect with respect to a marriage where one spouse is a believer and one is an unbeliever. If the unbelieving wife wants to live with the believing husband, praise God, let them remain as such. Let's stop forcing people into this idea that they're believers for the sake of the family portrait that affords our church, quote unquote, some opportunities for marketing and growth. Instead, let's listen to Paul. And what Paul says is, if the unbelieving spouse wants to remain with the believing spouse, then they can exist and they can flourish. And I'll tell you why he says what he says, because it goes right down to the children. It is the same for the husband. He doesn't simply leave it to the wife. Look at verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband. And he consents to live with her. He wants to be with her. He loves her. It's a part of what Jesus talked about, how those who are wicked can give good gifts. Now, their motives may may not always be the same, but they can live peaceably together in love in one flesh union. These things are holy. These things are divine. But he says the same for the husband in verse 13. The believer was not to consider their marriage desecrated because one of the spouses was an unbeliever. I believe that the modern 
church, quote unquote, over the last 50, 60 years, maybe longer, has failed in this area because they're pretending everybody's believers and they're pressuring and bullying and intimidating people who may not have believing spouses at home. And they're forcing unbelieving husbands into the fellowship when they don't want to be in the fellowship. And they're forcing unbelieving wives into the fellowship when they don't want to be in the fellowship. And then we're pretending that the conflicts that arise are because they're Christians. No, they're not Christians. And we shouldn't pretend that they are. What we should do is listen to Paul and say, if the unbelieving spouse wants to live with the believing spouse, praise God. Because God can then save the unbelieving spouse. That's how we should be thinking about this. We shouldn't be faking it until we make it. And that's what's happening at large. There's a lot of pretense and pretending in this area. And I sense that there's a lot of pressure on people to pretend that they are believers when they're not believers. And Paul was not trying to do that. Paul says the spouse is an unbeliever. But... If he consents to live with the wife, let them remain as they are. If the wife is an unbeliever, let her remain with her husband if that's what she wants to do. The Lord brought them together. Let him do what he does. Let him work how he works. Let us trust him. And so here, I think Paul is trying to clarify loyalty and fidelity in the context of marriage. With respect to how these two ought to function together. But you don't see any pretense here. You don't see him pretending that things aren't the way they are. In fact, he does paint a picture of the unbelieving spouse wanting to and consenting to living with the believing spouse. They love one another. Why are these people getting in the way of what God has intended? God has intended under no circumstance For the marriage to be severed. He wants that under no circumstance. And people will counsel other people on the way there. And pressure them to think that they're not to uh, be with someone who's an unbeliever. You can't control that. And Paul's going to say that later. You're not saving anyone. And the so-called church isn't saving anyone. God is saving them. And he may use those who are in the fellowship to do so. And he certainly uses his word to do so. But you and I, we don't do that. I think this command is very simple. And as I've said, it paints the picture of the sanctified home. Let me tell you how that happens. The believer was not to consider, as I've said, their marriage desecrated. That's superstition. They're not to consider their marriage desecrated because one of the spouses was an unbeliever. So that's the first issue. Then you don't see anywhere here where Paul says, well, let's pretend. Let's pretend. Let's put him through membership classes and just pretend everybody's saved. He doesn't say that either. He says, let them live together. If they want to live together in marriage, let them live together. Praise God. The home and the family, listen to this. This this is probably very shocking uh, to those who want to act as though they're mediators between husband and wife. And I'm not talking about Christ, who's the, who's the only mediator between God and man. But this may shock people. That essentially what Paul writes is the home and the family is sanctified in Christ as the two are one flesh. And one of them are in Christ. 
Now, I'm going to get into the divine and eternal implications of that. I'm not saying that that automatically saves the spouse, but I'm saying God views that as a sanctified and holy situation. Where am I getting that from? Verse 14. Look at this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. He doesn't say saved by grace through faith through his wife. There's a lot of that going around as well. He says sanctified in the sense that there's no uncleanliness on the basis of husband and wife coming together. The Lord may save one. The other may be an unbeliever. There's no there's no unsanctified nature of them coming together and then having children. But I refuse, I must pause here, I refuse to not teach this for a few offering dollars and play the game and act like that husbands and wives have to be unilaterally believers because we've sent them through programs. I refuse to play that game because Paul doesn't play that game. And Paul is dealing with a very immoral Corinthian society. And he's dealing with a very immoral people who have perverted the teaching on marriage. But he says for unbelievers to want to be with believers in marriage, they're already married or in the context that marriage takes place along those same lines. He says you're sanctified. You're sanctified. But he says this explicitly for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. That's simple. We can parse that. We can look at it. But it's simple. And he says, for otherwise, your children are unclean. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that material flesh is the issue at large. He's saying you're cleansed because you are partaking in God's institution. You're cleansed. And God told y'all to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He said it. You're fulfilling his command. Why then would we pretend that because one does not believe in him, that the whole thing is desecrated when he gave the command? He gave it in the context of the creation mandate. He gave it in the context of the Noahic covenant. And I believe it's implied in the new covenant when he starts to give commands for children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. It's all throughout Israel's history. It's all throughout our history in the church age. And so it's not desecration for this to look this way. It's not. And again, I'm going to explain why. He says, for otherwise your children will be uncleaned. Your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Uh Uh-oh. So the children are holy because you have one believing spouse Who trust by grace through faith in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And they can't control necessarily the belief or unbelief aspect of their spouse. Only God can. And they from that union, from their love for one another, they have children who are offspring. And yet that is a picture of the family and God deems it as holy. He deems it as a holy thing in his sight. So why are men acting like it's unholy if God says it's holy? 
And so Paul is very plain in this. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. I'll give it to you even more grammatically. It's a completed action with continual results. That he's sanctified through his believing wife. That the hope would then be, I'm not saying that he's saved through his wife, but he is deemed in the eyes of God as in the context of his marriage and vice versa. The wife in the context of her marriage with the husband, the home is seen as a holy place. It's holy. It's holy before God. Well, I don't understand. Well, that's not fair. Well, God is the ultimate judge. God has determined these things. Because why? Because God wants the glory for saving. That's why. We're going to see that as we work our way down the page. He's not saying, oh, it's great that they remain that way forever. He's saying, let me deal with the salvation. Let me save them. So the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife, and it's true for the wife as well. The unbelieving wife is also sanctified through the unbelieving husband. Listen, the call to true discipleship, I want you to understand this because I have known people over the years who do the other side of this. The call to true discipleship is not to, it's not a call to forcibly sever the bond of God's marital union. You don't take up your cross and then leave your spouse because your spouse is an unbeliever. That's not what Paul is teaching. It's not a call to forcibly sever through counseling techniques. The marital bond or to manipulate or to provide the kind of passive aggressive pressure to make people think that somehow their holiness is in question because they have an unbelieving spouse. So the, the, the call to discipleship is not to forcibly sever the bond of God's marital union as though there is defilement between the believing spouse who is married to the unbelieving spouse. God says there is no defilement if one is a believer. Now, if both are unbelievers, it is, in a sense, illegitimate whether they're married or they're, married or they're single. But in the context of fulfilling the mandate to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, that's a holy thing. That's a holy thing no matter who we're talking about in the context of male and female marital union. Listen, it was no badge of honor for the believing wife to send her unbelieving husband away. That was no badge of honor. That's what Paul is saying. Nor for the believing husband to divorce the unbelieving wife superstitiously. Because all this is in the realm of Greco-Roman culture. And there's a lot of superstition about physical defilement. And people trying to act like they had access to the heavenly realm when they really had access to demonic things through their pagan religions and trying to consult the gods on these things. Paul is simple here. God saw them both as sanctified in him in the context of marriage as one of them is in him. Well, what then becomes of the children? What then becomes, oh, I don't want to bring my children into this world. What? That's a strike against God's commandment. I don't want how oh, my, my spouse is an unbeliever. We shouldn't have children. What? That's such an unholy thought. It was no badge of honor to pretend as though the spouse is so defiled that the children would be defiled. 
Those are unholy thoughts. Those are how the pagans regarded the quote unquote family. And they regard that the same way today. That somehow the children must be sacrificed at the altar of everything. Because they're just in the way. But no. Well, you know that God views the marriage as a blessed and sacred union in him. You know that from what we talked about before in the context of male and female marital union, he views intimacy in the same way. As the husband and wife, because you need both, as the husband and wife are fruitful, multiplying and filling the earth. That's a holy thing. It's why the scriptures say children are a gift from who? The Lord. They're a gift from the Lord. The children from this union then of the unbelieving spouse with the believing spouse are considered consecrated. Now, I didn't say they're considered saved by grace through faith. I'm saying they're considered the institution, their participation in the family unit. They are considered consecrated, set apart before God in the context of the family and holy before God because they are fulfilling his command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so, you know, I think then the problem in Corinth was, I think Paul's trying to avoid the pretense. He's trying to avoid people pretending they're saved, yes. But I think it is more so he's trying to prevent the perversions that were attaching themselves to marriage. We have the same thing today. But I think our challenge is that we have to stop And by we, I mean really them, that the church at large in the modern society in which we live, they have to stop pretending that everyone in the family unit is saved without qualification. And therefore, that's how we present ourselves as looking like we're holy. Instead of just being as you are in this sense, I'm going to do what Paul said and then we're going to get to the faith aspect. I'm going to trust that God will save my spouse and my children. I trust him. I can't manipulate that. I'm just going to be faithful to his institution and he will save them. And so I believe that our challenge is not to forcibly try to work this out by our own hand. And so the children are seen as blessed. Paul knew nothing. He knew nothing of this forcible pressure in modern religion to pretend everyone is saved and then marry one man and one wife together under the false pretense of their salvation. And then when the pressures of marital union hit, then they figure out that everybody pushed us together and we were not distinctly Christian. As we have discovered before, Paul leaves no room to manipulate this in an effort to, quote unquote, focus on the family. He's also not playing the game of having the family as just just this portrait of holiness because everybody in it is Christian. No, that's not the case here. Paul's saying even if there aren't, God's saving power is strong enough, eternally, eternally powerful enough. That the home is consecrated before him, that there is a peaceable home because God is involved because one of his children is involved. One of his disciples is involved. 
that wherever you dwell in the context of marriage, if you are one who is married and you are the only believer in your home, that home is consecrated before God. That's how powerful his salvation is. Now, I'm not saying everybody's saved because of your salvation, but I'm saying now I believe that that home is certainly consecrated before him. And now you can pray for their salvation where no one else could. Now, you can model what Christ has for them before them. If no one else does. I believe Paul is also picturing a persevering love. We talked about this before. And I think it's going to go hand in hand with when he begins to describe love and define love. You'll see the qualities that relate to what is said earlier as we stand in this place in our letter. We are not Gnostics. We are not Gnostics. The Gnostics in the New Testament time, especially the time in which John wrote against them, the Gnostics believed the material body to be evil without exception and the spiritual to be transcendent and holy without exception. Paul's not teaching this. He says one spouse is an unbeliever. One spouse does not believe. But the fact is, if we are holy in Christ and if we are in Christ, then the marriage in family is holy if but one is in Christ and the whole family remains. Now, I've been saying it all the way through. This does not mean that the whole family is saved. I'm not saying that. But it does mean that the whole family is considered clean in the eyes of God to procreate and enjoy the grace of life itself. This is right down to the children. It's right down to the children. He doesn't say pretend the children are saved. He doesn't say introduce measures to make it seem as though. He says God already deems them as consecrated before him. Now let's deal with them where they are. Verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Let him leave. He doesn't say pretend, fake it till you make it. Let's just attend more Bible studies together. No. He says, let him, if, he, if he needs to go, let him go. That's consistent with unbelieving activity, unbelieving thought. It's the desire to abandon, to abandon those who bear the image of God, to abandon those who are followers of Christ. I'm not saying that that won't break the heart in a sense, emotionally, but I'm saying Paul says, let it happen. The brother or sister, the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Why forcibly want someone to stay who doesn't want to be there? Let them leave. But God has called us to peace. Paul recognized that the unbeliever may not want to remain with the believer. He recognized that. In that case, if the believe, if the unbeliever should seek to abandon the un, the uh, the believing spouse, let me say it again. If the unbeliever should seek to abandon the believing spouse, it is permissible to let them walk. You're not driving them out the door, but it's permissible to let them walk. What undergirds all that I'm saying is what Paul says: the call to peace. You're not called to fight, to labor. In such a way so as to forcibly cause someone to stay who doesn't 
share your testimony and faith in Christ anyway. So there's two sides of it. If they want to remain with you, please, by all means, by God's mercy, remain. But if they want to leave, then you have to go. I understand why you would want to go. It may hurt you that they want to go. I'm not making that a trivial thing, but they must go. It is peaceable not to forcibly retain the unbeliever who wants to leave. So now you see the implication. If we're pretending one unbeliever is a Christian and then the one wants to leave, then we have to pretend we're dealing with Christian divorce. And then we end up botching the whole thing because we're disciplining Christians who aren't Christians. One is an unbeliever. Paul says, let him go. Let him go. What are y'all doing reading his name out as though you're disciplining a Christian? Let him. He walked away. He wasn't a Christian to begin with. You didn't discipline him. He wanted to abandon. You didn't discipline her. She wanted to leave. And Paul, I believe what he says earlier in the factions, he doesn't tie his name to the salvation of believers. Remember what he said about baptism? I didn't baptize any of them. Well, my point is some people are holding people in this context of of unbelieving spouse with believing spouse as prisoners. For the simple fact that they married them. For the simple fact that you were baptized in my name. And so now I have to hold you both together, even though Paul says one was an unbeliever. You should have known that because, you know, the terms of salvation and one is a believer. Now, here's the teaching on that. But if he or she abandons, let him walk, let him go. But you can't let him go if you're pretending that they're in him. I believe that the call to peace is also a call to honesty. I think it's a call to honesty. Let's be honest about what God does in the context of what we're seeing. Let's be honest that we're not saying that the unbelieving husband or wife is a believer. Let's be honest and say that we the call to true discipleship is not take up your cross and leave your spouse. That's not the call. You may be hated by your family, but it doesn't say drive them toward that hatred. But it says if they want to abandon you, that's consistent. That's that's what it looks like to serve Christ. That those who love you the most at one point may grow to hate you the most if they're not in Christ. They will abandon you. We're told that. Jesus is upfront about that. Why are we holding unbelievers against their will and pretending they're believers? And so that's what undergirds this. The call to peace, refreshingly a call to honesty. It is not for their freedom. Paul doesn't say let the unbelievers go so they can be free. They're enslaved. The fact that they want to leave means they're enslaved. He's calling for the believer's freedom. For the believer's freedom. You want to know why? Because you can't save them. They're not going to be saved in your name. No matter, Paul is saying, how much you have cared for your unbelieving spouse... And I believe that those acts are significant no matter how much you have been faithful to the command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth or having reared children together. None of that accounts for their salvation. It's why I've said before, 
it doesn't mean that God sees the institution as he does. It means that they're automatically saved because some leave. But what he says, your stake is not in the claim that you have worked some works in front of them. Your stake is in the claim that God can save them. I just need to be reconcilable, hoping for that day to happen, whether they remain in the house or not. A reconcilable heart. It's for the believer's freedom. God wants his people to have peace of mind. There's already so much trouble in the world before you. He wants you to have peace of mind in all these areas. If unbelievers are abandoning you, let them go. I'm not saying that in a cold way. I mean, let them go. Our role is to pray for them. And how much more intimate can this happen in the context of a marriage? I'm not saying there won't be times of sorrow and tears and frustration. But God knows. And we have to trust to do what he said. But we also have to trust that if God wants them to remain, we have to allow them to remain. He doesn't say resist them remaining because everybody will think. No, he says if they're unbelievers and they consent to live with you and you're a believer, happy marriage. Be blessed. Walk in that. And God, God can do a work. Pray to that end. The unbelieving spouse is to walk. The believing spouse, if they want to walk, he doesn't say send them away. The believing spouse is not to be a slave to discord or to the spouse who causes discord. That's why he says it's, it's a call to peace. Let them walk. Listen, it is God who could save the one who abandons. It's not our revenge. It's not the laws of the land. Nothing can persuade someone who abandons the ones who love Christ except God himself. You know who we see that in? Paul the Apostle when he was Saul of Tarsus. We see him who abandoned the God that he heard about and brought before that God and saved by him. Thinking he was walking toward him, but really walking away from him and persecuting Christians. It is not us who does the saving. Look at what he says in verse 16. Oh, wait, before I say that, let me back up. He says, he says in verse 15, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Listen to me. He doesn't promote this as if this is the norm. Essentially, when he says in such cases, is if this should happen in this occurrence, I want to be clear on that. But look at verse 16. For how do you know, O wife? How do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Why are you charging yourself with the responsibility to save them? It is God who saves the ones who abandoned. And we all were that. We all abandoned him. But it is not us who does the saving by chaining anyone to us, by telling the elders to intervene with some of their magical counseling techniques so that the people would just, our spouse would just listen and be pressured and love me. No. 
or it is not us who do the saving by abandoning them. Maybe they'll realize how good they had it. Paul doesn't call for manipulation. He calls for peace. 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 I want that word to remain with you. Peace. It is this peace that God has called us to. And that must reign in the home. That peace must reign in the home. Whether you have a believing spouse or unbelieving spouse or unbelieving spouse who wants to leave. God has called the home to be peaceable because part of concentration. I'm sorry. Consecration is to be peaceable. To have God's peace reigning in that particular situation. That is what makes for holiness. It is to have God's peace, to be at peace with God, for God to be at peace with us. We get there by obedience, by faith, by trust. But listen, Paul says something that is very encouraging as we look and peek ahead to the next context. Look at this. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. I like the way that's said, because he doesn't say, let us pretend. If the unbeliever walks away, guess what? He or she was an unbeliever. That's what unbelievers do. They walk away. They quit. They abandon. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it can be traumatic. But we serve God. We don't serve the spouse who stays or, walk, or walks away. We serve God. And that's what he says. Let him walk. And he says, I'm telling all the churches this. This isn't just teaching for Corinth. This isn't just, well, early in the church's history at work, but we, we need some new techniques. God can rescue those who choose to walk away. He can do it. I know he can do it. But listen, he does so as we walk in the peace that he gives. That's what Paul is saying. Let them walk in the manner to which they were called. Let's pray.